so my take on this is I think the laws we have in place are adequate. I think Article 8 is a wonderful piece of legal protection. But I go back to a point that I made before, which is that legal protection is meaningless if we don't know how to use it and apply it. And what I would say is that there is a real lack of practical guidance out there from regulators in particular about how employers can lawfully use this type of technology in this new world. Artificial intelligence is poised to take over an increasing amount of human tasks, with many fearing industry-wide redundancies. Even those who don't lose their jobs risk their rights being undermined. With the use of artificial intelligence in the workplace generating multiple privacy and discrimination concerns. We consider with experts Martin Kwan and D. Masters whether human rights can provide the solution taking new perspectives on much-discussed problems, can we indeed prevent redundancies using a right to work? And fundamentally, how can human rights help workers the world over when it comes to this non-human challenge? Artificial intelligence brings many promises, but to many, it is a threat as well. As artificial intelligence can increasingly perform tasks at a low cost, what happens to those whose jobs are displaced by robots? And if we're using artificial intelligence in the workplace to monitor our employees and to make recruitment decisions for us, how can we ensure workers' rights are respected? Is there indeed sufficient oversight and accountability when artificial intelligence makes decisions? Fundamentally, where do human rights and the rights of workers fit in the equation with artificial intelligence and employment? This area is a complicated web of issues, but here to help us untangle this web today, we have Martin Kwan and Dee Masters. Dee is a leading employment barrister at Cloisters Chambers with extensive experience in the intersection of artificial intelligence and employment. She advises many companies on how to ensure that their artificial intelligence systems are compatible with law and the rights of workers. Martin is a legal researcher and a journalist and the 2021 UNRF Fellow. He's also an honorary fellow of the University of Hong Kong Asian Institute of International Financial Law. Martin has written many interesting articles on topical human rights issues, including recently a fascinating article on the automation and the international human right to work, which will be the first workers' rights issue we look at this in this episode. With Martin, we consider whether a right to employment exists and if so, whether it can help and what governments can do to make the right a working one in practice. With an increasing amount of jobs vulnerable to artificial intelligence-induced redundancies, these questions have a huge significance. From the University of Cambridge and the Center of Governance and Human Rights, I am Mariam Tanvir, your host for this episode, and this is Declarations. I am also joined by Archit Sharma, our panelist who will be leading the discussion today with our special guests. Achit is a current LLM student at the University of Cambridge and will next year start his professional qualifications to be a solicitor in London. His research on his undergraduate dissertation last year on the role of human rights in emergencies has propelled an interest in learning more about where human rights are under pressure and how we can protect them. Archit, over to you. Hi, Martin. It's a pleasure to have you here today. I guess my first question to you would be, as a preliminary for all the listeners who might not be sure, 
is, is there actually a human right to work? So what does it mean to have a right to work under the covenant? I'm not surprised if some of our listeners think that international law obligations may sound a bit remote and empty, but this is not the case because state parties have to submit periodic reports to the United Nations Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights on the measures which they have adopted and also the progress made in achieving the observance of the rights. They, the review process is legally mandated by Article 16 of the Covenant. The UN Reviewing Committee monitors the implementation and compliance of the International Covenant by the state's parties. It will then publish their evaluations and observations as a way of public scrutiny. And governments generally take the covenant very seriously as a ratified multilateral treaty. This is observable from the fact that governments willingly submit detailed periodic reports. For example, in the UK periodic report, you will notice that the governments take the UN committee's concluding observations with due regard. The UK government has the practice of replying paragraph by paragraph to the suggestions and shortcomings raised by the committee. On the part of the UN committee, they make meticulous findings, like whether there is a high number of low paid jobs in the UK. So you can see that the whole review process is diligent and stringent. From my perspective, the public scrutiny effect provides a strong incentive for the states to improve on the right to work from the last periodic review in order to showcase their effort and their commitment to the right to work. And there are some really noteworthy examples. The Hong Kong 2020 report explained the new measures taken to implement the right to work, such as improving employment services, strengthening youth employment and providing more vocational training. So you can see that the Hong Kong government is doing a lot to achieve the right to work. And most interestingly, from the reports, we can see that some governments are already starting to monitor the potential impact of the AI revolution. For instance, the last report of the Switzerland, which was submitted in 2018 says, I quote, at this stage, no unemployment prevention measures have been put in place to mitigate the effects of the fourth industrial revolution. Now, the phrase at this stage is very interesting. This is because although nothing was done at that time, it signaled the acute awareness back in 2018 of the Swiss government on the relationship between work and technological advancement and that steps have to be taken at a, at a future stage. And apart from the international covenant, the right to work is also contained in the European Social Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as well. So I would say the right to work has an extremely strong standing as a common value of the world. Thanks so much, Martin. Yeah, so that's a great extensive answer. And I'm sure it's clear to all our listeners now that there definitely is a human right to work. That's pretty widely recognized. So I guess before I ask my next question to you, Martin, 
which is how that right, right will relate to artificial intelligence. I just want to give some context and background to everyone listening who might not be that familiar with the situation. So AI, or artificial intelligence, is a term that describes computer systems which are able to undertake tasks traditionally requiring human intelligence, and it currently threatens many jobs. So, for example, McKinsey Global Institute has estimated by 2030, so very soon, that 30% of jobs could be taken over by intelligent robots. Similarly, the World Economic Forum has said by 2025, so even sooner, um, that artificial intelligence could replace 85 million jobs worldwide. And we can see this in many industries, ranging from office administration to construction to drivers due to driverless cars to even the legal industry, where in the UK alone, up to 350,000 paralegals and associated jobs could lose their jobs in the future due to automated systems and AI. A lot of people argue AI will create jobs as well, and that's definitely a valid argument, but it's unclear how many jobs it will create versus how many it will take. Um, And at the very least, it's clear there'll be a painful transition where a lot of people will be out of work for a while. So it's an important issue to discuss and prepare for. Um, And so in light of all of that, and in light of the fact that we should prepare, um, I'm going to pose the question to you, Martin. Do you think this right to work, which we've just established, could that apply to the situations of mass redundancy because of artificial intelligence that we've just outlined? Well, I would say that the answer is a yes. But how is it applied depends on the government. The right work allows different safeguarding measures to be taken. The right was introduced based on the understanding that different societies have different states of affairs. So it gives them the flexibility and a margin of discretion to achieve the agreed goal of realizing an employment level that's as high as possible. And the most obvious route is to keep the jobs. In other words, it means AI and automation are prohibited in order to prevent job losses. This happens not just in theory, but also in the real world. The Indian government back in 2017 openly stated that it would not allow driverless cars in order to keep jobs. This stance was reaffirmed by the government again in 2019, explaining that autonomous driving could take away several hundred thousands of jobs. The government came to this decision after being approached by corporations on the possibility of introducing these technologies to India. So this decision was reached after careful consideration of the underlying commercial interests. And I obviously, and I I wait to see how this policy will evolve in the future in India. But this does show mass redundancies can be prevented if the government is willing to and is able to do so. But the reality is that sometimes jobs are simply not savable in some countries or in relation to certain sectors. From a business perspective, companies can earn more by having lower costs and higher efficiency by utilizing AI and automation. From the economic policy perspective, governments would want to enhance their national productivity and thereby improve the economy. We can observe this from the global trend towards the transformation into smart cities. For example, countries like Singapore 
has already been undergoing trials of using autonomous buses, and they have plans to improve the economy by having a more efficient autonomous transportation system. From the perspective of trade, we are living in a world that upholds multilateralism and globalization. We have international supply chains, international trade, and globalized competition. Buyers and consumers will switch to cheaper and higher quality suppliers from rival countries which have adopted AI and automation. Let me give you an illustrative example. According to the findings by the UBS Bank, it was estimated that reducing the number of commercial flight pilots from two to one could save the whole U.S. airline industry 15 billion U.S. dollars each year, whilst switching to full automation could save the sector 35 billion. So if an airline company utilizes semi or full automation and benefits from the reduction in costs, it will secure an edge in such a price-sensitive field. So just to... Pull you there. I was just wondering. We'll get to the right to those other human rights you mentioned in a minute. That's a very interesting point. But I was just wondering. So at this point, would you say it's fair that we can't expect governments to then halt technological progress to protect jobs? Well, in my opinion, I think that even if the government wants to protect the job, as the UN general comment has suggested, we have to make the distinction between the inability and unwillingness to protect jobs. So I think the practical reality and the globalized competition may force domestic companies and even the government to favor the adoption of policies of implementing widely AI and automation. Thanks, Martin. Um, I guess we focused a lot on the role of governments and states in protecting the right to work, and as you've just discussed, balancing it with other human rights. Um, I guess one question I would like to ask you is, should we be expecting companies rather than governments to protect the right to work as well? What, what role do corporations who are often driving that technological progress that we're looking at, what role do they play? Well, in my opinion, I think there is an ethical aspect and there is an ethical responsibility of the corporations. The non-binding UN guiding principles for business and human rights suggests that businesses should avoid causing or contributing to adverse human rights impacts through their own activities, and they should address such impacts when they occur. And in my view, it is desirable for corporations to contribute to both the upskilling and reskilling of the staff, perhaps as part of their corporate social responsibility. Well, I definitely understand that sometimes corporations are forced by the reality and the fierce competition to switch to AI and automation. So it can be futile to ask them to keep the jobs at all costs. Well, that said, as they are the ones who benefit usually the most from the deployment of the new technologies, I don't see why they can't bear part of the responsibility for upholding the right to work. Now, the current hottest topic, as you may know, in corporate governance is ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance, 
where corporations take the environmental consequences of their business activities seriously. In a similar way, corporations should start looking at the sustainability of their workforce in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution. And I think this issue can be importantly elevated as an ethical, political, and even philosophical issue. So you've talked about corporate social responsibility. How can we actually influence those companies to do something when it isn't in their profitable interests? Do we just have to hope that they will sort of comply with their social responsibility or is there more we can do? Well, I think the solution is to construe that their ethical responsibility is in line with their corporate interests and it reasons as follows. If corporate activities no longer generate a proportionate amount of employment for the society, then some of the government policies, even the ones in public health, currently prioritize corporate interests over other considerations because they are premised on the understanding that corporations provide jobs and job security for the society. But if that's something which do not hold true in the future, then the consideration should change and the policies will change against their favour. And so what do you think is the likelihood that, you know, this, what you've outlined, corporations focusing on these social impacts and, you know, this trend towards ESG in corporate governance, what do you think the likelihood is that this will actually have uh, a tangible impact Um, in concerning this issue of the right to work and technological progress? Well, I can only be optimistic on this issue. And I think, well, rather than having speculation on whether this will become the new trend, I think just like ESG, where environmental consequences are the top priority, I think our approach should be urging the community, the business community, to realize that they play an important part and role in ensuring that the right to work of the society is upheld. So I think it's more on the society, how the society are urging the change. Thanks, Martin. This discussion today on the right to work has been really interesting, and we really appreciate your time. So it seems from what you've said, we can't halt AI in its progress. But that doesn't mean both governments and corporations can't step up to do more to protect the right to work. But another important issue in this discussion about workers' rights and AI is the rights of workers who don't lose their jobs. AI will still radically transform workplaces for humans within employment and can still threaten their rights in damaging ways. Rights to privacy and non-discrimination are seen as fundamental rights for everyone. But many workers have seen these rights violated and eroded as technology is increasingly used by employers. Is there more we can do on this issue? We have Dee Masters here to discuss exactly this with us in the next section of this episode. As mentioned before, Dee is a leading barrister with extensive experience in these matters and many others over 17 years of practice. She set up AI Law Consultancy with Robin Allen QC, which aims to help businesses navigate a rapidly changing technological arena and the legal implications of using AI. She has written much on the intersection of law and technology, including co-authoring a highly influential report last year called Technology Managing People, The Legal Implications. So Dee, thanks so much for joining us here today. Before we dive into the details of the report and the impact AI has on the workplace, 
Can you maybe give a brief overview of what the issue is for all our listeners who might not have heard of these concerns before? Sure. So one of the consequences of the pandemic has been this huge explosion in technology in the employment relationship, which has had some really meaningful consequences. So first of all, we're seeing vast amounts of employee and worker data being processed through monitoring. We're seeing decisions being made about people, really significant decisions, so who to recruit, who to dismiss. And rather than a human manager making the decision, we're seeing AI tools essentially recommending what should happen and then managers simply rubber stamping those recommendations. And on top of that, there are really huge implications in terms of discrimination, because sadly, it's now very well documented that one of the difficulties with AI is if it's not used properly, it can lead to people being treated less favourably, differently because of disability, race, gender, all those sorts of protected characteristics. Yeah, so on that issue of discrimination, and that really is a big one that came up me when I was reading your report and other reports. So how exactly does AI cause these discrimination issues? That's a really good question. So fundamentally, AI is about stereotyping. So if we think about the machine learning process, what's going on there is there's an algorithm that's being asked to look at vast amounts of data and come up with a stereotype. So it might be the ideal employee. It might be what being productive looks like. So inevitably, if you fall within the stereotype, you're probably going to be okay. But if you're one of those individuals who's different, perhaps because you have a disability, that's when AI really falls down. And we see that in particular around, and I'm sure you've read lots about this before, AI-powered interviewing. There's lots of research that's come out of the state saying it's fine if you want to get an algorithm to recommend your perfect employee. But if you look different, if you have a disability that impacts on your speech or the way your face moves, that's when the AI model falls falls apart because you fall outside of the stereotype. Yeah, I think a really interesting example I came across was for Amazon's hiring algorithm, which I think they scrapped now. But I think the machine sort of taught itself to prefer male candidates because of the makeup of the company already. Um, I guess the question I would have would be, clearly this is an issue at the recruitment stage when you use AI. Does it affect workers at any other stage, maybe once they're already employed as well? I think recruitment is the obvious place to illustrate it, but you're right to highlight that you can see it elsewhere. So a lot of that technology that we see in the recruitment space is now being used to make decisions about who to dismiss, who is dispensable, decisions that ordinarily human beings would take about one another. We're seeing computers stepping into that space. We're also seeing AI make decisions or recommendations about disciplinary action, monitoring productivity. So it's really there in the the whole life cycle of the employment relationship rather than just at the beginning. And do you think our current anti-discrimination and equality laws, which I'm assuming were drafted and passed with humans in mind, do you think they are sufficient to deal with AI discrimination? Yes and no. You're right to say that none of our equality discrimination legislation was drafted with AI in mind, but actually it it translates very well to dealing with the modern problems of technology. But where I think it where I think we need to do some more thinking is around the transparency piece. So we all know that AI is often, not always, but often hidden in the black box. And that poses a real issue because it means that people are being discriminated against, for example, but they don't even know it's happening. And I think a neat example of that is this research around 
adverts and AI. So there's a lot of research now that suggests that if you're a woman, you're less likely to see certain types of job adverts, especially those with scientific backgrounds. You're less likely to see job adverts for high paid roles. Obviously, that's an appalling type of discrimination. But what's particularly invidious about it is that you wouldn't even know that it's happening. And that's where I think that equality legislation could be improved. Who cares if you've got a right not to be discriminated against if you can't effectively exercise that right? So what would increased transparency look like in practice? Would, you know, we expect software engineers to publish their code or? Well, I think I think that's part of it. I think auditing is a really important piece here and auditing code is one aspect of that. There's different types of auditing. So looking at the outcome from a system and trying to assess whether there's an impact on groups depending on their protected characteristics. But I'd like to see transparency kick in much earlier than that. So I'd like to see AI registers. I'd like to see a system in which employees and workers had meaningful access to information so they knew precisely how decisions were being made about them, what AI tools were were being used, And most importantly, having personalised decisions explained to them, why is this AI tool recommended them? Why is this AI tool said that they're not suitable for a job? And at the moment, there really isn't a legislative framework that supports that sort of personalised explanation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess, you know, one thing that struck me when reading about this issue is, at least personally, I always sort of thought of AI as quite objective and partial because, you know, it's A machine maybe doesn't have the same biases as human decision makers, but it's apparent that they do and can entrench those same biases. But do you think those like that perceived objectivity has caused the issue to be one that doesn't get as much attention or is harder to put, you know, see? Absolutely. There's a marketing spiel out there which is rely on AI because machines aren't biased. Humans are flawed. So buy this product from me and you can sidestep those risks. And that's very attractive. But when you think about it in more detail, you realise it doesn't always stand up. And that's not to say that AI can't be brilliant. I'm in, I'm in favour of technology generally. But what I'm not in favour of is uncritical adoption of technology. So not only can AI discriminate because it can embed historic discrimination, thinking of your Amazon example, but it can also be used quite deliberately in a, in a way that's discriminatory. I was having a fascinating chat last week with um, a lawyer in in the Netherlands who was explaining a system to me that was used there to do with decisions about who could receive child benefits and there was an AI a sophisticated AI tool to try and identify who was most likely to be making mistakes in their application and it had a deliberate decision had been made at a political level to target people who were deemed sort of sufficiently Dutch it was very much targeting people on the basis of their nationality and background So not only is technology not neutral when it's designed, but it can also be deliberately designed in a way that can target different groups. And we can never forget that. And so do you think, like, can we actually use AI in a way to reduce discrimination? Like going back to that original idea, can it actually help to reduce those biases or should we just be really cautious and maybe stick to human decision makers? I think it's it's difficult to generalise. I think there will be some areas, plenty of areas, where AI can be really, really useful. And just to take a really innocuous example, if you're an employer and you want to try and identify who has a training need within your organisation, 
that could be really powerful. I've heard about law firms using AI to distribute work. So rather than favorites being given the best cases or the best pieces of litigation, there's a piece of code that will look objectively at lawyers and say, this is the right team for this deal. So I definitely think that AI and technology generally has a really powerful role to play. But what I what I don't think we should do is just march along that path without asking ourselves the difficult questions. How, how do we know this isn't going to discriminate? What are the procedural safeguards? And we can't just assume simply because a tool is useful, it's going to be lawful or it's going to be consistent with human rights. Yeah, I think that's a, a powerful statement. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think another area that, you know, I thought was really interesting and I hadn't considered before was the right to privacy specifically within the workplace. And I think you talked about this a lot in your report. So could you briefly explain how AI can threaten the right to privacy of workers? Absolutely. One of the consequences of the pandemic, as we all know, was people having to work from home. And all of a sudden there are employers who are very concerned. Is my team working is my team working sufficiently productively from home? And so, again, we saw AI tools coming in to fill that void. And there were reports of tools that would switch on cameras in home settings to watch if someone at their desk, an algorithm to analyze keystrokes. Are the keystrokes sufficiently fast to tell me that this person is working hard enough? So technology, which on its face is incredibly intrusive, And it's not to say that employers aren't entitled to monitor their employees. Of course they are, but it has to be proportionate. In a normal working environment, employees would expect to be observed by their line manager, but they wouldn't necessarily expect to be observed in that level of detail and with that type of data being analysed. And it was taken to an even greater extreme in the state. So, for example, in the US, we know that there are organisations who were using machine learning to crunch employees' medical records to try and identify who's at greatest risk of COVID when it came to making decisions about management and teams. So this technology can be incredibly, incredibly evasive. And again, it might have a role, it might be useful, but let's not sleepwalk into it. And so do you think this is a a working from home issue, a pandemic issue, or is it something we're going to see even if, you know, a lot of workers go back to the workplace? I think we've we've crossed this line where technology has become much more normalised. I've no doubt that the pandemic has accelerated what would have happened anyway. But I think there's a reality. It's here to stay. People have become socialised to the idea of technology and monitoring, and I think it'll be very difficult to rewind on that. And I guess I'd pose a similar question to you that I did before about discrimination. Obviously, we have Article A and human right to privacy um, in the UK, at least. Um, Are the laws we have in place already sufficient to deal with this or do we need to revamp it a bit? So my take on this is I think the laws we have in place are adequate. I think Article 8 is a wonderful piece of legal protection. But I go back to a point that I made before, which is that legal protection is meaningless if we don't know how to use it and apply it. And what I would say is that there is a real lack of practical guidance out there from regulators in particular about how employers can lawfully use this type of technology in this new world. And and another point I saw in your report that related to privacy was on data protection. 
So how does data protection specifically play into all of this? And is it another concern we have? It's a brilliant question. So as I, what you tend to find at the moment is that this is a very siloed area. So you will get data protection commentators, data protection lawyers, you get equality lawyers, you get employment lawyers, but what you don't have is enough joined up thinking. And, and data protection and equality law is a really wonderful example of that because AI at the moment is fundamentally about data. If you're monitoring staff, if you're making decisions about who to recruit or who to dismiss, you're doing that on the basis of crunching enormous amounts of personal data. So you immediately have this whole legal framework to do with personal data being engaged. We all know about the GDPR. But what you will not see within the GDPR is an unambiguous statement that you must not discriminate when it comes to processing data, which is extraordinary. So you can pick up this piece of legislation as an employer and you can work through it and you can think, well, here's my lawful basis for processing my data. What I'm doing must be right. But nowhere is that trigger to say it's not enough to have a lawful basis to process this data. I've also got to be acting in a way that's in accordance with the Equality Act got to understand the principle of non-discrimination. So I think there's a, a lot of work here because AI cuts across so many different legal areas and regulatory areas. And what we need to start doing is now matching up and sewing together those pieces of law to make sure we've got something really consistent and effective and meaningful. And do you think there is a trend towards that matching up and sewing up or is it something you know we really need to push for because it doesn't seem to be happening yet? I think regulators are, are thinking about it. I think the past two years have been a real wake-up call because there has been this increase in, in technology because of the pandemic. Recognising the problem is one thing. I think fixing it is, is another. And I think we need to be much more creative about not just these rights, but how they're going to be enforced. So if we think about the employment field, we have a bespoke employment tribunal system here in the UK. It's meant to be low cost. It's not like the civil courts where the loser has to pay the legal fees of the other side. It's meant to be accessible. And I think we need to think about these rights around data, these rights around AI and discrimination, and making sure that they can be enforced meaningfully and cheaply and effectively in a forum like the Employment Tribunal. And at the moment, that just doesn't exist because you have this sort of siloing of GDPR goes to the county court or the high courts. Um, privacy goes somewhere else and we need to think about how we can bring it all together in one forum. Um, one point to me that you know almost seemed a bit science fictiony but I guess it's becoming a reality which is you know what happens if workers end up dealing more with AI than you know human employers and they lose out on that human to human interaction in the workplace what kind of effects could we be seeing from that? It does feel science fictiony, and, and yet we know it's it's here. We know it's especially here in the context of the gig economy. We know that there are swathes of workers who will never speak to a human manager. They will receive their instructions through an app. And if there's a problem, if they need to speak to somebody, it's very difficult because the whole business model is based on management through algorithm. And it poses really fundamental issues for what we think of the employment relationship. The employment relationship is supposed to be a personal relationship. It's based on mutuality. It's based on the obligation of trust and confidence. And we have to ask ourselves whether management by app is really consistent with that. And I think one of the ways, and we talk about this in the report, that 
perhaps we can try and mitigate some of those effects, is to say that actually when really important decisions are made about a worker or an employee, there's got to be a human involved. There has to be a right to say, I want a human person that I can engage with and explain my position who makes the decision about me. Because otherwise, we risk not just irrational decisions and unfair decisions, but also discriminatory decisions. So does that right currently exist? Like, Are there currently legal implications to not having that human contact or is it more something we'd want to see in the future? I think it's all being tested in the courts at the moment. So, for, for example, we know that AI is making decisions about dismissal. Now, to me, as an employment lawyer, that's inconsistent with legal protections we have in this country, the right not to be unfairly dismissed, which also is a right to due process, a right to transparency. And I suspect that when these sorts of cases start to be adjudicated upon by the courts, the courts will say it's not fair, it's not lawful for an algorithm to make a decision to dismiss somebody. But we're not there yet. This is still a brave new world. And we're yet to get those sorts of judicial decisions. I think building on that, so do you think, you know, the law will develop naturally and should maybe be able to stretch, we should be able to stretch the law and the concepts in it to accommodate AI and interacting with technology? Or do you think, I mean, you have lots of employment law experience, do you think maybe we need a bit of a fundamental rethink because it's just not, um, it's not aimed at dealing with this kind of situation. It's like you said, premised on that human to human relationship. I think the law will get there, but the difficulty is it will take time. And that to me is very unsatisfactory. So this isn't an issue just for employees and workers. This is an issue for employers too. They need to know what they can and cannot do, especially small organisations who don't have access to lawyers who can tell them what's lawful and what isn't. There are lots of companies out there selling these technological solutions, which seem very attractive to employers. What I think the government needs to do is rather than change the law, it needs to better explain the law. So we have lots of statutory guidance, for example, to employers about what it means to discriminate. Well, that's great, but it needs to be updated to reflect the challenges of AI. It needs to be updated to explain what Article 8 means in the context of AI, and it needs to be updated to explain what's fair and not fair, what's consistent with the employment relationship and isn't consistent with the employment relationship. I don't think employers have to wait to get sued before they know what they're doing is right or wrong. There needs to be clarity right at the beginning. Yeah, I guess one of the questions I was going to pose to you was going to be, do you think we need to be making you know, a bigger push towards educating society generally and also you know, employers and workers about what their rights are, what their duties are in this new technology age. But I think, you know, from your answers, it's clear you think we do need that education push. I think we do. And it's not just, obviously, education is important. But I think there's another angle to this, which is technology can do wonderful things. And we're not going to gain those benefits if people don't trust us. And we saw that with the debacle with uh, students and exam results a couple of years ago. People are waking up to the idea that algorithms and AI are making really important decisions about them and they don't like it. And it's a shame if we if decisions that could usefully be made by AI aren't because society won't accept it. So I think one of the ways to start engendering trust now is to make sure that everyone's clear about what the framework is and how this technology has to be used in a way that's consistent with human rights. So I think sensible businesses will be thinking about trust as well and making sure that they're also educating 
so that their technology will be accepted. Yeah, I guess it's in their interest to make sure the workers or anyone being affected by the decisions the algorithm is making feels connected to that process then and understands. There are lots of businesses out there that, you know, really get this. You know, they want to use technology, but they want to use it in a way that's lawful and appropriate because they know their business model won't work if people don't trust them. But sadly, there are some companies that haven't smelt the coffee yet. And they're the ones that are really dragging different sectors down. And that's unfair because it means they're potentially getting a competitive advantage over those companies who are trying to do things properly. And, you know, to, I guess, pivot the topic slightly to position ourselves back with a worker who might feel like they've suffered under the hands of AI, been unlawfully discriminated against, had their privacy intruded upon. What would your advice be to them? to challenge that kind of AI practice? Is it feasible for a worker to actually do anything about it currently? Yes, I think it is. I think there are lots of legal frameworks out there that will protect a worker, whether it be uh, the right not to be unfairly dismissed if you're an employee and you've been in place for at least two years, whether it be um, the right not to be discriminated against, which applies to everybody under the Equality Act in the uh, employment setting. There are definitely pieces of legislation out there I don't think people are always completely knowledgeable that they're being treated badly or entirely know what the legal frameworks are, but they do exist and there is growing knowledge about how those tools can be used. And in that sort of situation where a worker then does challenge through these channels that you described, um, a decision by AI or says something's gone wrong with the AI, I guess, who do we hold responsible? Because it sort of, to me, seems like quite a tricky area. Like, Is it the company who has used the AI? Is it the software engineer who might have designed the AI? Where do we we say, okay, you're responsible for this problem occurring? Yeah, I I think that's a brilliant question. And I think there's there's two angles to it. I think the first is where now does the law say responsibility is? And then I think there's also a really evolving debate, particularly at European level, about reforming law so that everybody feels responsible. So just to, to give the bigger picture on that, Again, one of the challenges about regulating AI and making sure that AI is lawful is that there are often so many actors in the value chain. So there might be one company that produces the data set, another company that trains the algorithm on that data set, a third company that packages and markets it, and then the fourth company that actually uses it in the workplace on an employee or a worker. And at the moment, the law would say that the person who ultimately uses the tool has a liability. So if you're an employer and you buy a tool that's discriminatory, it's not a defence for you to say, well, I didn't make the tool. It's not a defence to say, I didn't understand what I was doing is is discriminatory. If you make a decision using an AI tool that discriminates, you are liable. Equally, under certain pieces of legislation, some of those other actors in the value chain will also be liable, especially under discrimination law. But I think in reality, what will happen is that people will just sue the person who they have the immediate contact with. So if you feel that you've been discriminated against in terms of recruitment decision, it'll be the recruitment company or it'll be the employer. And that makes sense, but it does potentially also leave off the hook those companies who might be more culpable because they're the ones that have actually created the tool. And I think there could be some work done on trying to create more of immediate accountability within that value chain. And so, you know, in your opinion, you said there's sort of an evolving debate about where to find that responsibility. What do you think 
the optimal solution would be, or is there not really one that's more fact dependent or something? Well, the approach that's being looked at at the moment in in Europe is to create obligations at each stage in that value chain. So uh, an obligation to use data sets that are balanced, so as to minimise the risk of discrimination, obligations to audit at every step in the way. So in a sense, what you're doing is, and this is very familiar to employment law conceptually, is that you build in procedural safeguards in the hope that if they're in place, you've got a better chance of decisions being made that are fair and are non-discriminatory. And I think if a similar approach were adopted in the UK, we would equally see a huge improvement in the quality of tools that are being produced and used. And so do you think going forward, like those principles, you know, keeping those principles of transparency, fairness, openness in mind, will that be enough to limit the negative effects of AI? Or should we be taking a slightly more radical approach and really limiting the use of AI in the workplace unless it's been cleared, checked out, and we're confident it won't have negative effects? Where do we draw that line? Because obviously you've talked about the benefits of AI, so we probably don't want to stop it completely. No, we definitely don't want to stop it completely, but there are there are certainly red lines, and we talk about this in the report. So it, it's it's thinking thoughtfully about what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And for me, a red line would be that AI should never be used to make really significant decisions about people. So, for example, if you're going to get dismissed or not, simply by a machine, especially where the basis for that decision can't be explained. And I include with that rubber stamping, it's not enough in my view for a human being to look at a computer's decision and say, oh, that looks all right. The human being's got to own the decision. And if they're not doing that, then that's just a red line for me. And it's just a type of technology that just should not be used. And I think if we can have those red lines, we can then be much more comfortable about the really helpful uses of AI and we can allow them to flourish whilst knowing that those really dangerous areas just aren't going to be touched. And I think my you know, a final question to you would be, and we sort of already touched upon this when talking about education and how we need more guidance about the impacts of AI. Do you think there's enough discussion going on about these issues? And, you know, in the circles, I'm sure that um, the AI law circles, employment law, you know, people are discussing this, but just more generally, do you think there's enough discussion are enough discussion going on? Are people aware of these issues? Or do you think we really need to push for that more? No, I, I think that's a really fair point. I, I think it's still pretty niche So you will find academics who talk about it. You will find civil rights campaigners, especially in the privacy space, talking about it. But the unions have started talking about it. But I, I think it's still... The debate is still in those quite kind of niche areas where people talk about human rights a lot. And what I would love to see is it more coming into the mainstream media. There's been a debate in the past couple of years because of COVID about COVID passports and what what information a government's entitled to know about you. And that's great. But there's another dimension here, which is what about private employers? What about private organisations? What are they doing with your data? What are they doing when it comes to really important areas of your life, like employment and recruitment? And that, I think, hasn't been highlighted enough. It's such a fundamental issue that really affects most of us in a very personal and important way. So I think 
it's definitely something where there should be more discussion then. Um, but thanks for coming onto this podcast today and talking about it with us, because I'm sure that will help contribute to any discussion. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Both Dee and Martin have made it more than clear that artificial intelligence can pose a threat to the worker's right, both at the entry point to the employment, where the right to work may be disregarded, and during employment, where the host of rights being undermined. But it seems like the picture is not all that bleak. There are certain things we can do, especially by strengthening the content of these rights and increasing public awareness of these problems. Will governments shore up the protections and ensure workers' rights simply don't become a fantasy as the job landscape shifts beneath our feet? Will we, we need to rethink our conceptions of employment and how the employee-employer relationship functions in the first place. Only time will tell, but hopefully we have given you something to think about today. Thank you so much for everyone for their thoughts and Archit and thank you all for listening. For those listening, if you have any questions or comments, please find us on Twitter via Declarations Pod or like us on Facebook. You can also send us an email at editor at declarationspod.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on today's discussion. Signing off, Mariam Tanvir, University of Cambridge. Bye-bye.